Hi, my name is Hans Peter Meyer, and I'm the host of the Men's Work Podcast, where you'll find interviews with men and with women. You'll find yoga classes, you'll find reflections, you'll find a lot of material to hopefully help you move through the tests that life has handed you end of marriage, loss of job, marital relationship stress, fatherhood, just being overwhelmed. It's a lot. So listen, if you need to talk, I've got no charge mini coaching sessions at menswork.ca. Enjoy the show. Hi, Ted. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, I'm great. Good. Now, you can hear me fine? I can. Okay, and we're recording this, so is there anything that we need to talk about before we dive into this conversation or we just want to go into it? I think we just go into it. I'm kind of curious. I don't know where we're going. You know, <laughs> there's so many things when you're talking about death. You know, it could be, uh, gosh, it could be making death an ally. It could be scripting our own death. It could be creating an ethical will before we die. It could be, mm-hmm. what does it mean to, uh, it could be, I guess, life after death. Although I don't really have much to say around that. Um, so really, I don't know, where do you want to go? Okay, well, let me just start by doing a little intro. Okay. So if you've just and- dropped into this podcast, you have heard me talking or talking with, with Ted Reiter, uh, and we're already getting into it. <laughs> so our topic today is men and death. And um, well, like, I'm I'm curious about where this goes too, but I want to start with a couple of of things that are very personal to me. So, I I hadn't I wasn't thinking about this when I when I scheduled this with you, but yesterday, May second is the it's now the fourth anniversary of my father's death, and I know for lots of men, the death of the of the father is both figuratively and literally is a, is a big event in our lives. And um, my father started to disappear on me, you know, long before he died, he, he broke his hip, I guess, three years before he died approximately. And, and then slowly started to slip into dementia more and more. And, and the man who <laughs> had plagued my earlier years <laughs> and with whom I had, um, you know, quite a lovely time for the last 20 years of our lives together. Um, he was no longer there. So, so I started to feel, uh, I felt like I was dealing with death, his death for a long time. And, um, And he was never the father I would have chosen. Uh, I mean, that's a whole, you know, that, that's a, that's a, a topic episode, for, right? Yeah, well, long, many right. conversations, you know, just how we, who are our fathers and, and what do they bring us? So, I mean, it, like I said, the last 20 years were, were a lot of, I had a lot of fun with him. And I, part of that was seeing parts of myself in him that I liked. <laughs> Um, 
but it was strange watching him disappear and and as i you know one of the things that he gave me and i think legacy is a really important thing for us to talk about because for a lot of us men i think the idea of, of legacy is is really important um and part of his legacy for me was to, to really be helping me with things like being a handyman. I'm, I'm not a handyman. It's not somewhere where my heart goes. Uh, I don't have a tool collection. I have a chaotic pile of tools. <laughs> um, and he would, uh, he, you know, once he retired, he just started to show up at my door and start telling me things that needed doing and then making arrangements for the time for us to do them together. And, and that really was, you know, a time of some frustration, but also a lot of laughter for us. So I, I really miss that. I mean, I look around my house and I, my house misses that. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, but I also really miss his, his sense of humor and, um, and this is somebody who, you know, he was born shortly before the war in northern Germany. And what they went through, and, then, and his father was an alcoholic, and it was not a pretty childhood. And it was, no. you know, coming to Canada uh, when he was 18 in the early or the mid-50s was a liberation for him. And, and he was very happy about that. And he... He was mostly a, you know, a pretty happy guy, but he also had a lot of anger and a lot of hurt in him. Yeah, of course. And, um, and that's, that was also part of his legacy for me was, was dealing with that. <clears throat> and, um, and I struggled with him for a long time. Like I just, and then I ran into a, a mutual friend at a party once and uh, I, I had gone through a, a traumatic life change accident kind of thing. And I felt like my father was being an asshole and, you know, wasn't supportive, et cetera. And, and I was, and, and this, this person who I didn't know him well, but he had worked with my father and they had really struck up a, a friendship and, and he asked after him and I said, well, you know, my dad's been an asshole, blah, blah, blah. And he said, and his father had died not too long before. And he said, when they're gone, they're gone. And one of you has to be the adult here, and it might not be the parent. And um, so the next time I had an opportunity to, instead of waiting for my dad to be the adult, I just reached out. And his response was like, he was, he was so wanting to connect. He didn't know how to do that. You know, he had his, all his pride stuff and all the, all the things that get in my way as well. You know, um, he was waiting for that invitation. As soon as, as soon as that was there, like then, then our honeymoon started. And, and like I said, the last 20 years of our, of his life were a lot of fun. That's beautiful. So so I was really grateful for, you know, to, for, for that friend to talk about death in that way. And that, 
I mean, I see, I see people, I listen to people, I, you know, I have clients and students. I mean, I read, there's all kinds of reasons to take people out of our lives because they're painful and because they're difficult and they're not giving us what we want. And, and I, I keep going back to what this friend said, you know, like one of you is going to have to be the adult here and it might not be the parent. And I look at how, how I am with my children and how much I can hold a bigger loving space for them and allow them to grow into who they're, who they might be. And while I have expectations of them, I, I don't want to let those get in the way of, of getting to know who they are and supporting them. And do you think that and capacity has grown since you repaired that relationship with your father? Or was it always there? I, I think having children <laughs> helped me to have a lot more compassion for my father. But the idea of death really is about like, I don't know, like, to, I, so then, then I also had, so I've had several significant deaths in my life, and I haven't always dealt with them. I've never dealt with them in the way that I, I would like to have deal with them now. So, mm. so as a, you know, so one of the things that, you know, the work that, that I did with, with, John Wineland and you were part of that team that was leading that a couple of years ago, an online program. And he gave us this, these 11 precepts. And one of them is, I think it's the 11th one is, you know, to make death your ally, to use death as a way to sharpen your practice. And, and all of a sudden, I just saw like, there were a lot of things that I, not a lot, but some significant things that I really had been putting off. Um, and I, I want to tend to those, I, you know, I, I, they're, they're important. And if I go tomorrow, if they're not dealt with, then that's a burden for other, for the people I love. Yeah. Well, so let's dig into that a little bit, but, but before I do, first of all, just back to your father and the traditional uh, in my tradition, Judaism, we would say, may his memory be a blessing, or may your memory of him be for blessings. And so on his yard site, the, the anniversary of his death a few days ago, it may continue as a blessing for you and your family. Yeah, um, it is. You know, my children and I, we, we remember this sometimes difficult <laughs> person, but with, with laughter. People are very complex. Yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah. the that that precept you're talking about, make death an ally, which I believe actually comes from Carlos Castaneda, mm -hmm. uh, the lineage, that shamanic lineage of the death is always just over your left shoulder, I believe he taught. Uh -huh. Always over your left shoulder. And and it's it's interesting because I think that many people feel death over their shoulder left right you know somewhere somewhere lurking and so then they need to run forward 
to, to grasp life. But that's not what we're talking about. It's not a graspiness. It's not, let me run away from death. Let me try to you know, do everything that, that advertising tells me I need to do to live longer and better and healthier and, and you know, become immortal. Instead, it's making death your ally so that it's, it's a friend there. But it's a, it's a friend who is helping to sharpen you and hold you on that path so that when we go to sleep every night, we can say, what do, can I die complete? Did I do what I need to do today so that I can die complete? And, and so that's a, it's a powerful practice to bring into your life of having death as that ally to remind me that I've got important things to do today. So when I'm you know just mindlessly scrolling through you know, my Instagram feed, is that is that on purpose? <laughs> and it could be on purpose, right? Or it could just be, hey, I need a break. And then, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking a break and resetting. And, and there are lots of great ways to do it. And Instagram could be one of them. But when I want my life to be one of integrity, how can I use that reminder of death as an ally to say, all right, I scrolled on, on my feed for five minutes and now I'm back to, um, I'm back on track and on track might be fully present with my family or my friend or my client, or it could be creating whatever it is I'm going to create, or it could be going to the gym, whatever that might be, but it's now I'm back on track so that I can die complete tonight. And, and I mean, the, Well, you have, you know, you, when I brought up this topic, you said that you have officiated at a lot of end of life ceremonies, you know, funerals, celebrations of life. And, and, and and your comment leading, you made made a post yesterday or a couple days ago about how ill-prepared you felt the first time you did that. I don't imagine you had... You were you were conscious of death on your behind your left shoulder at that point, but you were there in a position to help people in your community and through your rabbinical practice to somehow deal with this thing that when it, it be, when it stops being abstract, it just becomes really fucking painful. It, it can. It doesn't have to be painful though. I don't ever remember it as painful. Um, I have to say, I have really incorporated the idea of, you know, death over your left shoulder, but I had already read that book when I was in, in college in the, in the mid eighties, I took a philosophy or late eighties, I guess I took a philosophy class and we read journey to Ixlan and we read a couple of books by Carlos Castaneda. I had no idea what they were all about. (laughs) To be quite honest, I, I read about it, but I didn't really have that consciousness of it. But death, as I was growing up, was simply part of the cycle. And so the tradition I come from, we have memorial services certain times a year for the entire community. At certain holidays, everyone comes together to remember their own loved ones. 
And though I was taught that I should not go to those services until I'm obligated to, meaning that one of my parents had died, a sibling had died, a spouse had died, I was was a child at the time, um, or a child of mine had died. Those are the people who are obligated to go say those, those certain prayers, those memorial prayers. But then every time we had a service, every Sabbath we had a service, and there's a memorial prayer at the end. And so it simply became the rhythm. I never knew anything differently. So I don't think I grew up with a fear of death. Mm. Mm. But I'll tell you what really changed for me was my own near-death experience. And I was in the Florida Keys. We were out there. It's like a bad movie. We were out there scuba diving. We had run out of air because we went the wrong upstream rather than downstream or something like that. And we surfaced and our boat wasn't anywhere nearby. Mm. And during that time, I thought, this is it. I'm going to die here. Dropped my weight belt, you know, did all the things I was taught to do, but I really thought I was going to die. And I found a peace with it. I found a real peace in that sense of, and it's okay. So I don't know if it was a, oh, all of a sudden I know it's okay, or if it was more of a realization that this is what life had brought me to, that 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 moment between life and death, that liminal space was going to be okay. But yeah, as I posted, I officiated my first funeral when I was about 25. I wrote my first eulogy a couple of years before for my grandfather, who I didn't really know or really even care for that much, but I was asked to do it for the family. So I did that. But then later, I was a student studying to be a rabbi, so graduate school in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the local mortuary knew that if they needed someone who was not part of a synagogue in the area, they'd call one of us. And so I got the call. And yes, I, I knew where to find the service in the manual, but that was about it. My Hebrew still at the time, my Aramaic even at the time wasn't very good. And so I knew I was, I had to write, I, I read through it over and over again. I only had about 24, 36 hours to prepare for it. Um, but mostly just wanted to show up, show up as loving, show up as, as let me hold you through this process that I don't really understand either. And since then, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of funerals over the years, the last 30 years. And And every time I go, I consider, wow, what an honor. What an amazing Mm -hmm. honor. Uh, Sometimes I come in before death. I'm invited to hospitals or homes and able to see this person, their last breaths of life. But certainly sitting with their family and friends through that process and after that process. But going to do the funeral is for me just a profound, uh, beautiful experience. I don't know if you just heard that our, uh, someone's neighborhood's uh, lawnmower just came by. So no, I didn't hear that, <clears throat> but I was wondering if, um, 
if, if you think you're unusual in that and your appreciation of this experience. I like I don't I don't know So I recently trained as a funeral celebrant. So now I can do weddings and funerals. It's kind of interesting. Which do you like better? <clears throat> well, I haven't actually done any, uh, but I, I'm drawn to funerals more than weddings. Um, but that's a topic for another conversation, I think, because that has to do with weddings and marriage and my views on that stuff. Well, but there's something to that. I want to just touch on that. Yeah. For me, funerals are, I hate to say better, but people <laughs> often show up more real in the funerals. Um, weddings, there's all kinds of stress and, you know, the whole bridezilla stuff, all that. But but even beyond that, the bride can be totally cool and and, and ready for it all, but there's just a lot of stress around it. There's trying to do things right that everyone's trying to create this, this space for funerals. People show up and they show up and they recognize, I don't need to put on airs. I don't need to show up to please someone else. And so for me, yeah, weddings are joyous and celebratory and funerals are deeply, deeply meaningful. I am um, another time also. <laughs> well, I'll just make this comment that I, where I struggle with weddings is that I think the focus is so much on, on these, you know, 15 minutes of, of glory at the front of them. And then the party afterwards. And so many people, I don't think really, I mean, okay. I was in a, a beautiful, very short little, I was an assistant to a recent uh, tantric workshop. And the facilitator did this wonderful job of, of weaving death into this for these couples of, of getting close. And she read this poem about if you are in a committed relationship, you will experience a thousand funerals. I don't know if you know that poem and I'd love to I, share it with you. I just, I love the idea of if you're committed to being with somebody, they will change. I mean, you will, I will change. And, um, and so how do we, and, and this goes to our topic or what I, what I'm interested in is like, how do we observe those? So what I hear from you is that, you know, you're, I mean, it's one of the reasons I love talking to you is because, <laughs> you know, there's a resonance here. You love to observe these solemn moments, you know, they're, and I, that's what I'm drawn to. And, um, and I think our weddings, and, and perhaps our marriages would, would mean more to me or have more significance. Yeah, same thing. Um, if there was more of a sense of this, okay, you're, this isn't going to be this huge, it isn't going to be an, and you know, an ongoing party. It's going to be, there's going to be changes and there's going to be this, we could observe the, these funerals, these changes, these deaths as 
something to mark and pay attention to. Anyway, so I, I went through my wedding training and, um, but I was very dismissive of it and people's attitudes and stuff. And, and then I would start doing this funeral celebrancy work. And, and one of my friends said, well, at least, you know, they're committed. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But I, I like what you said about like, so people, sh people who, sh people show up and there's a certain humility. I mean, there's like, we're, we're finally, you know, in this culture of like trying to deny death and deny aging and deny illness and all kinds of things that we just are trying to run away from as fast as possible or find technical solutions for or whatever. All of a sudden, we're, there's this humility. Like we're just basically, we, there's nothing I can do here. And when I talked earlier about the pain, it was not so much the pain of the person dying, but the pain of people around them having to, like if you would have, if you wouldn't have made it back to shore that night, you might've had this opening up to something beautiful, but your family would have been bereft. And that's, I guess that's what, that's what I'm curious about in terms of how we, as men, not only personally make death our ally, but then also like, how do we lead our families or how do we lead our marriages? You know, like, <clears throat> so another story from my life, when I was 10, my eight-year-old sister died in a tragic boating accident. She was one of eight people. The, it was a, basically it was my uncle and his family, <clears throat> a neighbor kid and, and my sister. And all the rest of them were like, really, they had really strong, um, Christian tradition, fundamentalist kind of Christian belief system. Uh, my father didn't have that. And he, he had lost his, so he grew up, like, as I said, you know, and during the war and, and post-war starvation, et cetera, et cetera. And his, his sister had died when he was, when he was, when she was four. And then now his daughter dies and he was so angry and he could not lead us. He could not provide any kind of support to, to me, the remaining child or his wife. It was all about him. And, um, and, and he, it was like that to the end of his days. I mean, shortly before he died, my mother who does these beautiful painted letters, I had said to her, you know, like, I don't remember enough about my sister. Would you do one of these letters, you know, with picture with your your drawings and some pictures and some words about my sister and and so she did that and it was kind of hard for her you know but she was up for that and and um and then she made one an extra one for to, for me to give to my father they they'd been separated since i was you know <clears throat> 18 or whatever and his response was to just freak out you know the way he would have like 40 years before, 50 years before, 60 years before. And I got angry with him. And I said, you know, this is not just about you. Like all of us grieve Heidi, all of us. And the way you made this about yourself meant that we couldn't, you know, it didn't feel safe for us to grieve. 
I mean, I still feel it. I still feel that anger towards him. And I all, and I know that he was in pain. But I guess, you know, as someone who works with men, as somebody who has had a rabbinical practice, I mean, the question could be as simple as, like, how do we, what can we do? What can I do, heaven forbid, that I'm faced with that kind of tragedy in my family? Like, how do I how do you provide hold- a mask? How do I hold the space? How to provide a masculine kind of leadership here and look after myself? Right, right, right. How do you hold death differently? Um, for one, I think you don't wait till death. One, a beautiful, beautiful tradition is something called an ethical will. And, you know, a regular will we write and we you know, our, our, our kids, our grandkids inherit something from us, some object, mm-hmm. right? It could be, you know, some, our, our fine china, it could be a bank account, it could be a home, it could be all kinds of different things. An ethical will actually goes back a couple thousand years. And these are the things that we're handing on that are really our legacy. These are the things that have influenced my life informed my choices. These are the decisions I've made. And these are the things I'm handing on to you. So I think it's a beautiful practice to write one now. And in fact, I have one. This is draft at the top (laughs) because it doesn't need to be used yet, but to write it and then to go back to it over and over again. So I was just saying to my wife a little while ago that it's time to go back to my ethical will and to look at it because people in my life have changed. And what am I leaving for my daughter, for my son, for my wife? What are my hopes and blessings that I'm handing on to them? So I think one thing to do around death is to prepare for it. Prepare for it by recognizing here's the legacy that I'm giving to you. Here are the teachings I'm giving to you. The other thing we can do around death that I think is a a powerful practice that comes from uh, Reb Zalman Shakter Shalomi is to script our death. So to really th- feel into if I could plan my death, mm-hmm. who would I want around me? What setting would I want to be in? What's the music maybe I would want to play, the smells that I want to have around me? What are the last words I'd want to have on my lips or the last words spoken into my ears? Now, is that going to happen that way? Most likely not. But through that process of scripting my death, I become more at ease with my own death and accepting that, yes, I'm going to die. May it be peaceful. So, so two things already, right? An ethical will, scripting my death. And then, you know, I said earlier, I come from this long tradition of doing memorial services, lighting the candle for a yard site, the anniversary of someone's death. So it just becomes part of the regular rhythm of life. So that when there's a death in the family, 
I'm able to hold people in a different way. I'm able to grieve deeply and not make it about me. I'm able to support those people in my family who are most hurting and help ease them through this transition. You know, I think before when you were saying that we're living in this society where everyone is, uh, you know, trying to escape death, I don't think anything's changed. I think we've been doing that for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. It's just that we now have new technologies to escape death, plastic surgery, or the latest medications, or you know, uh, cryo, whatever freezing of our of our bodies. But in the in the the past, the way that people escaped death was really focusing on an afterlife, and and we may not focus on that. Certainly the more secular communities may not focus on afterlife. So what do we focus on? How do we, how do we hold on to, how do we hold on to uh, life as long as we can? How does that resonate for you? Oh, there's just lots there. Are you ready for death? If you knew that today was your last day on earth, could you die complete? No, there's still a couple of things I have to do. <laughs> what are they? Oh, it's it's finishing my will, actually. But I, <clears throat> it's interesting, you know, like, so the conversation we're having is, um, I've, I've, I've started to have some of these conversations with my, um, with my oldest daughter well with both of my with my both of my daughters and um the you know the the one has said to me well I could, both of them i think find it kind of morbid and um it can be morbid. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, that's what the the word is really morbid. It means about death, right? So that's exactly, you know. Of course it is, right. Um, or morbidity, right. Uh, is it something that, um, well, I think this is the, you know, for me now, and, and so I, I also have my my <clears throat> mother who is, you know, uh, what is she now? 86. And, um, so I'm quite aware that she lives close by. I see her a lot. I'm really grateful that she decided to move back here, whatever that was 10 years ago, because now I get, I actually see her a lot. If she lives, if she still lived, you know, a thousand miles away, it would be much harder. And I'm, and I'm really grateful that I had, you know, my father close by, all of my life, but certainly the last years. So I feel lucky. 
so I, I think about this, you know, like my kids aren't too far away, but how do I, like, you know, what is my living legacy with them? You know, spending time with them. I've had, I've been really lucky this winter. <clears throat> my, my oldest daughter is, is pregnant with her second child and she's, she's had a very tough pregnancy and she knew that was coming. So she, she and her husband spent the winter relatively close to where we, where I live. And also it's the same community that her mother lives in. So we could be support to her, but it's meant that every week I, I spend a day with my granddaughter and I, a, a day with my daughter. And, you know, we have inconsequential conversations and we have consequent, and they're all consequential, you know, they're all, I mean, I especially think this way with my granddaughter of like, you know, she has had a bunch of experiences with me that, that will be with her all of her life, just as, you know, my, my time with my grand, I was lucky to have, you know, time with, with both sets of grandparents. And, um, it's going to pause that for a second. When, so the other, so the, so my father's death, my sister's death, the, the third, chronologically, it was the second um, really important death in my life was when my best friend died of cancer when I was in my early 30s, mm. mid-30s. And he was 10, 10 years older than me, I guess. And um, so he was the, he was a man who I had a really a, a, an important relationship that wasn't just about work and wasn't just about sports and wasn't just about partying. It was, there was heart stuff. And, um, and when he died, I found that really hard, but I was also aware that I needed to find another man friend like that, like that, that, and I guess this is one of the thing about men and death is that before I get into that, sorry. So as he was dying, which I did not do very well with, I didn't know how to stay present with that, you know, and, and he said to me, you know, words to the effect of don't be so down in the mouth, like you could die tomorrow, <laughs> you know, like, like I've got a, I've got a, a death sentence or like, we know that I'm not going to live too much longer, but you know, you could die in a car accident, you know, like no one knows when we're going to go. So don't be all morose about me dying, you know, like, and I don't think I fully understood that at the time. And then I also picked up because I'm a book person, I picked up the Tibetan book of the dead and it didn't really, the one thing that I remember was just this idea of live every day as if it's your last day, which is, you know, when you ask me, like, am I ready to die? Well, that's become much more concrete as I look, as I'm aware of my mother. And I call her every day, even though she's a few blocks away, I call her every day. And there's times when she doesn't answer the phone, you know, and I go, okay, is this the time? Like, you know, is she having a nap? Is she like, not hearing the phone or is she is is she somewhere else you know is she she dead so i think about that a lot and it's not a it's not a 
not so much in, as, as a negative thing as something I want to run away from, but it's like, okay, you know, make sure I spend the time with her, you know, make sure that I'm letting her know how much I love her. Make sure that I'm, you know, just being a good son. She makes that easy. I'm lucky. Both of my parents have made that, you know, as much as my dad was an asshole when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, he would have been happier if I would have been a fisherman, you know, like and like some of those things. I did, I did become a logger. He was very proud of that. But um, but my parents have made it really easy. So I feel like that's their legacy for me. It's like, so then I I look at like, how can I do the same thing for my kids? You know, my my two daughters and my two stepsons is like, you know, how can I what kind of support do they need? How do I offer that? You know, how do, what well, you mentioned, you mentioned one thing already, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you need to do? You said you need to write your will. Yeah. What's stopping you? Well, actually I have it all written. What, what's stopping me is, is this one question I have to ask somebody. And then I take it to the lawyer and get it or the notary and get it notarized. So could you ask that so person today? No, but I can ask them tomorrow. Okay. I'm talking to them tomorrow. Um, so the whole idea of preparing, actually, mm -hmm. let's step back because we're talking about men's work. And yeah. one of the central tenets of men's work is integrity. Mm -hmm. Things don't necessarily need to be in need to be complete to be an integrity. But if you're aware of them, there's a need to be working toward it. So if you have, you know, like, ah, oh, God do this will. And I, I'll, I'll be quite honest. I had a trust that I was creating. It took me forever to do it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I was integrity with it. Oh, I need to do this and this and this. Here's the next steps. And sometimes I was out of integrity in creating that trust because I was just letting it sit there and I had a consciousness of it. But I wasn't doing anything about it. So we're talking about men's work and how we sharpen as men, how we live a life of integrity. It's seeing where are we uh, moving toward that place that we feel we need to be. And it could be with a will. It could be with a relationship. Right? I know I need to repair this relationship and I'm not doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, that's not an integrity. I know I need to repair this relationship and I am doing small steps. That's actually integrity. I may not have repaired it yet, but I'm in the process of repair. Well, I'm going to, I'm actually going to make a public commitment around something, but I'm also going to bring up how I, it's interesting how these things come together. So I've been sitting on this, this last question to ask for a long time. And um, there's also been a money issue. So some money came to me recently, and also an opportunity to do some training with some people who I and all of a sudden, it's really clear that that training is like secondary, that I actually need to take this bit of money that I've got here and deal with this other thing and lay that to rest. And then, and then 
a lot of things are going to feel right. Mm -hmm. I think that's, the, the, you know, that <clears throat> I'm skeptical of a lot of, you know, where I, I, I see a lot of talk about mission and purpose. And I think that's all well and good. But to go back to your thing about integrity, there's stuff that I certainly I feel that it's about when I am in a place of integrity, I feel good. And then, and then issues like mission and purpose become less important. I don't have to seek them. They come to me, but first I have to do this stuff about being in integrity with myself. What if that um, is your purpose? Yeah. What if that is your purpose? Yeah. You know, to, to live a life of integrity. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful purpose. Yeah. Creating this empire or doing X, Y, Z could be a purpose. Nothing wrong with that. But living a life of integrity. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful to me. And, you know, one of the things that, and I, maybe this is why morbid conversations or conversations about funerals um, resonate for me is they make me slow down. And when I slow down, then I'm, I'm less in pursuit and I'm more willing to actually feel what's happening. And I can, you know, I, I teach yoga. So a lot of the stuff is really about, you know, and the stuff that I've done with you and, and John, the way I interpret that is it's not just about, you know, opening, you know, doing physical things to open my, it's actually bringing myself into alignment with myself, into integrity with my, like, it just starts with something as simple as how am I standing? How am I breathing? And then I start to feel like something's not right. And sometimes it's just, you know, one of the things that I love about, you know, the work that I've done with you guys is sometimes it's just as simple as like learning to open the front of my body and watching what happens to the people around me. Yeah, it's great practice. Well, it's it's like magic, you know, and and it's the kind of magic that I wish I would have learned, you know, several marriages ago. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it not having it. learned it, I've learned it now and now I do necessary repair work and and necessary legacy work with with my with not only my kids but also with you know with with women who there's difficulties with so so let's wrap this back around to the topic of death because i think the the primary question or the you know the title was was men and death Mm-hmm. And there is a there is a place of striving that many men live in. Striving, I need to do this. I need to do this so that I can dot dot dot. And there's a pressure that comes with it. Societal pressure, mm -hmm. frankly, comes with it. Uh, men are expected to achieve something.
And then men often feel the burden and the shame. This is such a heavy load to carry, or I'm not meeting this place. Mm-hmm. Making death an ally, which is part of our original conversation, mm-hmm. is a way of putting all of this into perspective. In some ways, it's an encouragement to, well, let's get this stuff done. On another level, it's a recognition that most of this doesn't matter. Mm. Creating that next business, maybe it's going to save the world. I don't know. Depends what the business is. But mostly, it's fairly inconsequential. And if that's the case, can we walk through life recognizing that um, that there are both things that I want to do to feel complete before I die and not carry it as burden or not strive for it from a place of shame, but rather to do it as as, as holding a little bit of you know, death is right there. I may never complete this. Mm-hmm. So it becomes an embrace of rather than a grasping toward. So can we go through life really using death to create a place of ease? Mm-hmm. I may never complete this. But if you look through history, I'm a tiny little blip anyway. Now, I have the power to do a lot of good and the power to cause a lot of pain. But I can also go forward in life from this place of ease, knowing that death is right there. Rather than this urgency, like, oh, I've got to get it, got to do it, got to do it, strive, 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 grasp, 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 which doesn't really feel good for anyone. How's that sitting over there? Well, this is the you know this is a conversation that I'll probably be um, well. I know I'll be thinking about for forever <laughs> till I die. <laughs> um, As I said earlier, and as you know, what what I'm hearing from you, or the way I interpret it, is if I can get comfortable with slowing down a little bit, the things that really matter start to show up, and they don't show up as things that I need to as you put it, grasp or achieve. Most of what's important in my life are not things that I have pursued. They're things that have come to me Well, but let's also put relationship in that space. Mm-hmm. 
Well, so that's can, what I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm definitely thinking about relationship. Okay. Cause we could also be talking about, right. Like creating the next business or something like that, yeah. you know, yeah. but the relationship, can I, without being graspy for the relationship, can I embrace without grasping? There's a subtle difference there. Mm-hmm. Energetic difference that I mean, you can even feel like someone grasping at you rather than someone embracing you. Holding death as ally, becoming friends with death, I think gives us this space, the spaciousness to embrace rather than the coming from this place of wounding. I need to get this business relationship, amount of money, uh, yeah, view for my house, whatever it might be. It's in a different perspective. So when you work with men, I mean, how, where are the points of the resistance and, and how do you help them, if you do help them, get past that? A lot of it's around self-judgment. Mm. They're judging themselves because they did not make as much money as their friend, their, their college roommate, uh, judging themselves because they're buying into their spouse saying you're not enough. Their societal pressures, family pressures, they're just internal pressures. So part of it is just letting go of that judgment and teaching them to be okay with where they are without a complacency. I don't need to do anything, Mm -hmm. but being able to see themselves as whole and perfect, even as they move forward to live this life of integrity. And when it comes to it, that's really the key for me. Are you in this place of integrity? Are you at least moving toward it? Or as one of my teachers would say, Kendra Kunov would say, I think you know Kendra, uh, mm-hmm. gesturing toward, like taking a gesture toward that place of integrity. So the uh, so those who who are struggling with death, a big part is judgment. The other part is the preparing for their own death. And as I said before, scripting your own death, even writing your own eulogy, writing your own obituary are wonderful practices that I've taken on and I've taught over the years. Mm-hmm. And these are, these are simply ways of normalizing. You know, we think some reason that the death is abnormal. It happens, it <laughs> for, happens for, me, for me, definitely, it's so abnormal. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I haven't experienced it, but it's normal. It's... <laughs> So I had asked you about, you know, <clears throat> working with men and, and you talked about, you know, this feeling we have of needing to achieve something and the, the burden of, so death, death <clears throat> this idea of a, a finite time becomes a, a burden, or, you know, doesn't free us. And your practices earlier, and I'm 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 going to ask you to you know repeat them at the end of the, sure. the call here shortly. You know they are ways of 
broaching what is often something, a topic we're, we're afraid to broach, but actually using it as a way to, to liberate ourselves to actually feel freer and more alive and more focused <clears throat> on, on maybe this thing that might be our purpose, which is to be more alive while, while we're here. And one of the deepest experiences that I had sexually actually came after the, the death of my, this, this man who was my best friend at the time. She felt much more open, but I certainly felt like so vulnerable. And something else I just read the other day where sex researchers are saying that from there, they're saying, you young people there, you know, don't despair. It gets better. Like, the, you know, the research shows that the best sex people have is in their 60s. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but the urgency around our how we experience sex to me has to do with, well, there's a bunch of un, there's a bunch of chaotic thinking for me here around this, because I love this idea, like the French, the le petite mort, you know, the little death of orgasm. And I was writing about it recently. And there's a, there's a writer called Olivia Lang. Have you ever heard of Olivia Lang? No. She wrote a book recently. That's how I got to know her. She wrote a book called Every Body. She writes about lots of things, but this one book she wrote about everybody, and it starts by talking about Wilhelm Reich. Do you know who Reich is? So Wilhelm Reich was a, he was kind of considered one of Freud's golden boys uh, back in the 20s. And, and then, then he started to see that the work he was doing with this, this pro bono work he was doing in Berlin with, um, with people around their issues and stuff really could be traced back to not not childhood trauma but just not having enough to eat and not, have, not making enough money you know like there was economic reasons for this and then he started putting together Marx and Freud and but he's he did a lot of work around how the body he looked at what was happening with the emergence of fascism and the the kind of the patriarchal family as it was expressed in in Germany at the time and and just sort of look at like a lot of this has to do with repressed body not not just repressed sexuality but repressed body and a lot of that was would be sexual it for me this this idea of the vulnerability that we experience in death i read this essay about men's experience post-orgasmic experience and it was the first time that i had read something about my experience <clears throat> and it and it had to do with the and he was describing how for lots of men that post-orgasm there's actually a closing like we don't you know simple this is vulnerability so we we don't, we don't, we want to protect ourselves. We don't actually want to be open at this time when, when she wants to be like super open, we're like closing. And then I started thinking about this idea of the death, the little death and how, when I'm that vulnerable, and certainly when I was younger, it was really scary. I don't think I consciously thought about dying and that experiencing that much vulnerability <laughs> to, 
takes death from the left hand shoulder and puts it right in my face and I don't want it. At the same time, I want to experience as much sexual pleasure as I can, but it's often in a you know, quite literally grasping kind of way. And anyway, like I said, this is, it's not very well thought through. It's just a bunch of things that I, that keep coming up for me. Interesting. Uh, so what's pinging for me is this connection between vulnerability and death. And, and death, when I've been there in person, seems incredibly vulnerable. The most vulnerable. There's nothing left that person can do to keep living. They're at the mercy of something that's greater than their willpower. Mm. Their hearts or their whatever it is that's that's bringing death on whether it's natural supernatural i don't know but something greater than their willpower it's incredibly vulnerable and so many men fear death so many men feel fear vulnerability but there's a place to explore there i don't know what it is i've never really thought of it in those terms but certainly something to to dig into um, how can we become more comfortable comfortable with our vulnerability how can we become more comfortable with our own death i think they go hand in hand somehow there's a there's a saying attributed to margaret atwood but she says it's from somewhere else but it's um every man is afraid of a woman humiliating him every woman is afraid of a man killing her like those that that's how different it is but but that that humiliation is a kind of death for us yes so there's a there's an ancient writing uh, there's an ancient writing that says that that humiliation is like murder the mm -hmm. humiliation draw their blood yes yeah, idea it's been around for thousands of years But if we look at if we look at post ejaculation as this little death, mm -hmm. and also a time that's incredibly vulnerable, that all makes sense. No wonder that's in our body that way. It's the same. Be interesting to see some real science behind this and study this is it'd be interesting to see what chemicals are racing through our body when both of those events happen i don't uh you know i just have a lot of questions and a lot of kind of loose ends here i just um well, not, i think that's appropriate uh, given that we're talking about death so yeah neither of us have actually experienced death firsthand <laughs> Uh, so it makes sense that there are more questions than answers. To circle back to my father, you know, one of the things where I, the year that he died was, um, I was starting to put things back together in my life. I'd gone through a pretty tough year, the year before. 
but I really felt at a loss on how to, you know, it, it was up to me to, to look after all these things. And I think I did fine. You know, I hosted a, an, an event at my home about a month after he died. And, and then we had a family gathering at the beach and we scattered his ashes. And, but I always, I've always felt that there was more that I wanted to do. And, and that I, so as part of this funeral celebrancy work, we were asked to, to write a, a eulogy for somebody that we knew. And I wrote, I wrote a eulogy for my father and I, I, I drafted one. I feel like there's still more work to do on it, but I just felt so good. And then I shared it with my kids. And I, I've been in groups before where we wrote eulogies for each other. Mm. Uh, in fact, going and interviewing someone's family members and friends. Right. Backstory. And to write a full eulogy, and it's a it's a gift. It's yeah, a gift. it is. It is. It's a, to 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 receive that. I mean, to be able to write that is, is definitely a gift. But but to receive that kind of thing, whoa! Like also, um, eulogy gives us a chance to assess our life. Mm -hmm. We have a a program coming up called Depth Council with John. And I'll give it away. One of the questions on the application is to write their eulogy. Actually, it's just a few words for the eulogy. Yeah. And then the next question is, okay, how do you feel about that? <laughs> and how would you, if you could create it differently, what would it be? Mm. And, and this is a really, I think, an important process to, to look back to see what was really meaningful. I mean, I can't tell you how many funerals I've been to where... I've looked around the room and just been astonished by the impact that this person has had on people's lives. Mm -hmm. wondered, who will come to my funeral? Mm. They say at my funeral, will I have had an impact enough that people would want to come? And it's a, it's a sobering thought, sobering practice to say, okay, if so, what would need to change to fill the room? I think, I think that's it, a great, go on. I think it all comes down to how much have I loved? Mm. That's, yeah. that, that's why people come to funerals. I loved this person because he mentored me, because he was a best friend of mine, because he was a family member, whatever it might be inspired me. How much love are we giving? That's really the indicator. Not what we're building concretely, but how much love? Well, I think that's a beautiful place to end this particular conversation. Um, I do want you to remind me and whoever gets to listen to this of the practices that you had mentioned. Um, but thank you again, Ted. Oh, my pleasure. Always my pleasure to come to speak with you. So I spoke about two practices that I think are, are supportive of anyone 
we're talking about men here, but really for anyone. One is scripting our own death, imagining what it could look like ideally, the, the people around us, the music that might be playing, the smells, the lighting, uh, maybe our our dog will be with us. Maybe our best friend will be with us. Maybe it's just family members. Scripting what it will look like helps us normalize, helps us become okay and even welcoming of that moment. The other important practice, which goes back thousands of years, is to write an ethical will. And the ethical will, as opposed to a regular will that we might write, where we give people objects, the ethical will is speaking about these are the things that I'm handing down to you that are non-material. It's the way I've lived my life, the values that I've held. Maybe it's stories that you might not know, things that have helped shape me to who I am today, and also includes my specific blessing for you as my wife or for you as my community members or for you as my best friend. So it, it's general, but it's also very specific. And it's something that you could work on today. There's no reason not to start drafting this at least. And hopefully create an opportunity where you can be the one to read it to them. So they don't actually have to wait to your death. <laughs> I think take on either of those practices and they would be beneficial not only to you as you contemplate your own death, but as you hold others during a time of death that they've experienced. Thank you very much, Ted. You're welcome. Um, and uh, to anybody who's listening to this on the podcast, this is one of several conversations I've had with Ted and it's, it's always been really good for me. So um, we'll do it again sometime. And um, until then, thank you and goodbye. You're welcome. All my best. <laughs>